Thank you for downloading this edition of Wartime. Remember, as always, Wartime is fully supported by contributions from listeners like you. For more information, please visit wartimepodcast.com. I hope you enjoy the program. Known in England as the Princess of Virginia, Pocahontas would become the face of the New World for thousands of Europeans. Although her early life remains a mystery, the arrival of the Jamestown colonists in the 17th century would skyrocket her to fame and bring her people to great misfortune. After being the subject of a fictitious major motion picture in the 1990s, we are now more distant from the incredible life and legacy of Pocahontas than ever before. Although she did not paint with all the colors of the wind, she remains one of the most important native figures in North American and European history. On this episode, we discuss Pocahontas. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another edition of Wartime. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. In Season 4 of the series, we're discussing Game Changers, who they are, what they did, and why they still matter. As always, remember, history is best when it's shared, and you can follow me on Twitter at Brady Kreitzer, or by searching Wartime Podcast. You can visit our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Kreitzer. You can visit my author's website, bradykreitzer.com, for news, updates, and events. And of course, your home for everything wartime on the web, wartimepodcast.com. We are very quickly moving into the uh, wonderful, if you live on the East Coast, cool winds and orange and yellow leaves of the fall. And with that, you get a lot of uh, evocative imagery uh, of a lot of different people. Uh, but we have a lot of feelings associated with that. Uh, times of change, uh, tradition, family, heritage. Historically speaking, you do have that as well. You tend to look back. You tend to be more introspective in times like this. And today's topic, Pocahontas, a figure that by name I think we're pretty familiar with, maybe not by story, is one that always jumps to mind in the fall. Maybe it's because of the harvest. Maybe it's because of Thanksgiving. Maybe it's because of all of those things we traditionally group into the archetype of the native person. But I think now, here moving close to, again, October, uh, before all the spooky pumpkins and things start to come out, we should revisit this character. And I think it's one you'll find to be uh, very interesting. Before we start with Pocahontas, I do want to mention that uh, one of the things I've always done on this podcast uh, is politely ask for donations to keep the podcast going, to expand the podcast, new equipment, uh, maybe branching out from the usual format. And there are ways to make that easier now. And one of them is uh, making funding easier. So one of the things I've done to sort of pick things up in that respect uh, is start a crowdfunding page. And you can find that on the Facebook page. I'll also put it on the Twitter, uh, facebook.com slash Brady J. Kreitzer, of course. And there you can make monthly donations if you choose, which would be greatly appreciated. If you donate $50 or more, you get a free book. But again, it goes a very big way, and I have very high hopes for this podcast. I have a lot of things that I'd like to do with it, and a lot of things I'd like to change about it. Uh, I'd like to branch out. I'd like to bring in some folks uh, from 
uh, different places around the world, really, that we can interview and talk to and, and get to know better and learn their history. Uh, maybe people who work at historic sites. All of those things require money. And in many ways, wartime is a labor of love for me. I don't take advertisers because there's nothing worse than listening to a podcast and then listening to a five-minute advertisement when you start it. Again, I'm not the kind of person that begs for money, but whatever you can spare, if you like this history, if you want to see wartime continue, uh, I would certainly appreciate it, and it would make things go uh, a lot smoother for us. Expansion is in the air, and again, I have a lot of plans that will require some funding. So whatever you have, even if you give nothing, of course, listening is, is enough for me, but if you feel uh, that you can give a little extra it would be greatly appreciated. Let's talk about Pocahontas now. Let's move forward. You've had to sit through that. I understand that. There's a lot to this person. And there's a lot, again, we think we know about her, uh, which comes from some places where we typically wouldn't or shouldn't expect to learn a lot about history. And of course, I'm talking about Walt Disney's uh, vivid imaginary world he's created. I don't want this podcast to be, look how bad movies are. Because, again, I'm not the kind of person that likes to bash historical movies. If you want to learn history, read a book. If you want to be entertained, watch a movie. I know if I went to see a film and I learned a lot, but it wasn't entertaining at all, I'd feel like I want my money back. That being said, if I read a history book that was wildly entertaining but not very um, informative, I'd want my money back too. Let's keep entertainment and learning separate. But in the regards of the Disney film Pocahontas. And again, I am a child of the 90s, born in the 80s, raised in the 90s. Uh, this was a big part of my life. And when you learn this real story, when you see really who this person is, uh, not only does the Disney film fail to stand up, but it also becomes super creepy uh, dealing with the romantic entanglements of Captain John Smith uh, and some of the others. So we'll talk about that. And again, I'm not here to ruin anyone's childhood, but we do want to keep these things in perspective. The story of Pocahontas is one that is lost to the historical record, if not for the arrival of white English people in Virginia, what will be Virginia in North America, at the very dawn of the 17th century, 1607 and 1608. If you are a person who studies Native American history, who deals with Indian sources regularly, it's one of the challenges we have to really consider and embrace and understand that if you want to study them the right way, you do have to work around that and work with that fact. Again, the historical record for the native peoples before Europeans is silent because most native peoples, in fact the vast majority, had no written language. That being said, an overwhelming majority of native peoples spoke multiple languages, and not just two, but three, four, and five and beyond but a written component was not something that was there. So as historians, we like to go to the sources. You can't necessarily always do that when you're dealing with the native world. Again, not until Europeans arrive do you have these first-hand accounts of what, what is happening and why. And most of the time, they are so confusing and jaded, uh, it's very hard to tell what is what anyway. So we'll tell the Pocahontas story in the larger context of English colonization, not because they are intertwined or one and the same or because one depends on the other, but in context, I think the story becomes much more impressive uh, and much more useful for us. So here's the deal. By the time you get to the year 1605, there's a very clear pattern emerging in Europe and in North America, and the pattern looks like this. 
Because of the Treaty of Tordesillas signed about 100 years earlier, the Spanish basically have free reign over the entire Western Hemisphere. By the year 1700, the Spanish will have 200 cities and towns built in the Western Hemisphere. Places like Havana, Cuba are so big, they're larger than many of the old cities in Europe. The Spanish build a fortune on the things they find in the New World. Because remember, empires don't live to serve the colonies. The colonies live to serve the empire. So if colonies can produce a meaningful raw material not available in Europe, one that the colonizer themselves has exclusive rights to, a lot of money will be made and the empire will grow effectively. Well, again, the Spanish have a huge amount of success in the New World. Because they don't find a rare and unusual plant they can sell in Europe. They don't find much in the way of spices. They don't find any exotic animals. What they do find is gold and silver. They literally find mountains of money. I mean, the equivalent for this would be like if we discovered a forest of money trees that went on for thousands of square miles. $20 bills and $50 bills uh, growing at random. That's an incredible haul. And that's an incredible find. And again, the Spanish are the only game in town. The English and the French, traditional power brokers in Europe, aren't there. Not yet. And they realize Spain's economy will grow uh, 25% by the gold and silver that they find there. They find 181 tons of gold. They find over 16,000 tons of silver. And for every day that the English and French are not on the other side of the world, that's another day they lose out. So one thing we have to be certain of, whenever the English and French visualize moving to North America, South America's off limits because Spain has that under lock, it's theirs. Whenever they envision making that move, gold and silver, copper, minerals, that's the name of the game. Forget king and country, forget spreading the Protestant faith. It's about finding the gold and silver. Now in 1588, Queen Elizabeth I, who was one of the great monarchs in the history of England, will try to colonize North America far enough south that she's close to the what we think of as gold and silver zone, but not too far south that she's in Spanish territory. Florida today is Spanish territory. So they settle in, what does it say, North Carolina. Uh, they build a colony there. It's called Roanoke. It doesn't go well. The entire population disappears. They find no gold and silver. It looks like a bust. Now remember, the Spanish literally have cities and towns. They're doing so well in Central and South America. And the English have fallen on their face. Roanoke is a whole different podcast. But just know the first English attempt is an utter disaster. If you are England, that is an embarrassment you cannot suffer. So in 1605, the new king, King James I, pulls together the very wealthiest men of London. And we can say men at this time, because again, at this time, it's very much a patrilineal world. It's a man's world. If this happened today, there would undoubtedly be women involved. But the super wealthiest men of London, the Donald Trumps of their day. I love a good Donald Trump story, but at any rate, we'll drop them in whenever we can. And they bring them together, and they say, let's found a corporation, effectively, a company, whose sole mission is to go to the New World and find precious metals. I mean, they make a charter. They literally write it out, and they say their charter is something along the lines of, uh, they exist to, quote, mine all manners of gold, silver, copper, and minerals. I mean, that's what they say. There's no doubt here what this group is all about. I mean, they are unabashed, unapologetic capitalists of the highest order, and they pool their resources and money together, and there's a benefit to this. 
it's that it isn't necessarily done with state money. It's a private venture. So if it goes belly up, uh, no taxpayer, so to speak, could really complain about the effects. Now, it's not like today where taxpayers have a meaningful voice, but they would still be angry about another bust in North America. But it also means that these very wealthy men, including King James I, get to keep that money for themselves. And that's important, too. What they don't know is that there's no gold and silver in Virginia. And what they also don't know is that most of the people they're sending to the New World, blindly for the most part, will be sent to their deaths. But they do see an opportunity here, and again, there is a competition, an imperial competition. And it's in this world that Pocahontas, the figure that we know, will first emerge. Now, one of the things we always do when we tell the story is that we tell the story from the English perspective. Read any textbook from any level and you'll get that. You'll hear about a guy named Captain John Smith. We'll talk about him. You'll hear about the goings-on at the place they settle. These English settlers on the James River, they're called Jamestown. You hear a lot of the hardships they have, and then you hear a story of the strange Indians that meander their way into the picture and forever complicate the unspoiled grace of the New World. But I don't want to do that on this podcast. You can find that anywhere. I want to tell the story from the Indian viewpoint, from the Indian perspective, from the native worldview, because I think it's a very different one, and it's one that we don't have enough of an understanding of. So here's what's going to happen. We know the basic layout of the story. The English, again, settle on the James River. They have a great struggle ahead of them. That is, attempting or trying to rebuild what they know to be a civilized world in the New World. But what world do they find themselves in? Because remember, there's already a civilized world in the New World. There's already people who live there, who raise their families there, who... Uh, basically make their livings there, who wake up and go to sleep with their own conceptions of what is civilized and what is established and what is the way of life, and they think it's a good one. So who are these people? Well, right in the area, the area we call today the Tidewater region of Virginia, uh, where this story for first begins, there is an existing native powerhouse. Okay, We call it the Powhatan Confederacy. And that's an important term, the Powhatan Confederacy, because what it is, is not anything resembling a European empire, but it is a power structure that the English will recognize almost immediately. At the center of it are the Powhatan themselves, uh, an Algonquian-speaking, uh, power-breaking tribe, power-brokering tribe. Attached to them are anywhere from 20 to 40 additional smaller tribal nations who answer to them. Uh, who owe fealty to them. So in that regard, this sort of permanent second-class status or subjugated status, that's something Europeans recognize almost immediately. Uh, because that system is literally the one that has defined the European world uh, for the last thousand years. Now, at the center of this Powhatan tribe, and this will be easy for you, is a leader. And the leader's name himself is Powhatan. This is a powerful figure. He is a physically large figure. He would be recognized as the leader of all of these people, whether they like it or not, and probably most of them didn't like it. And again, physically, he is a huge man. He's almost six foot five. At a time when the average European height is five foot five and under, this is something that will be very troubling for many of the Europeans who first come to the New World. Now, Powhatan, not the tribe, but the chief, if you want to use that term 
will keep his court, his capital city, so to speak, in a village called Werowokomoko. And here he will run his kingdom. And it's a kingdom in which the interjection of a group of outsiders, like Europeans, will need to be cleared and need to be understood. Now, Palatine has a huge family. And again, it's a family that Europeans wouldn't really recognize as one they're comfortable with or familiar with. Because he has dozens and dozens and dozens of children. One of the ways he keeps control of the smaller tribal nations around him in this immediate area of Virginia is by asking that various single women of those respective tribes come to him and provide him with a child. He forcibly has sex with them uh, and he produces children. And when they have children, they'll then go back to their own villages and, and live a somewhat protected life. But the children are Powhatans. And if we were standing in Powhatan's court, we would see that he has dozens, maybe upwards of 30 or more children around him at any one point. And he does have his favorites. You can imagine, now, I can't think of having 30 children. Today, it gets you a reality show, but Powhatan has a big group, and he does have his favorites. One of them is a young girl, about 10 years old, who will be called by the Powhatan. That's the tribe as a whole, not just her father, but by the Powhatan, Matoaka. Matoaka. And the name Matoaka is an important name. And again, it's one that we aren't very familiar with, uh, but it has to do with the protection and the coveting of individualism in the Indian world. Because we'll know her as Pocahontas, a name that can basically translate to the rambunctious one, or the wild one, or the playful one. But she would never have been, been called Pocahontas by her own people. She would have been called Matoaka. Matoaka means the stream between two hills. Again, not necessarily as important what the translation is, but why she has two names. Because as soon as the English become involved in the story, what you'll see is the native peoples, the Powhatan, will never refer to her. Not even refer to her as Matawaka, her given name, in front of them. But they'll keep it a secret. They'll hide it just for themselves. Pocahontas, that's fine. That's a given name to be used in front of the English. Because the idea was, the English could never possess her, or harm her, or, or, or control her, or command her in the fullest way, until they knew that real name. I mean, even if they had her locked up, which they would, even if they killed her, they would never have full command, 100% ownership over her fate until they had that name. And we can kind of sense that. We can kind of get that, why they would do such a strange thing, at least strange from our vantage point. But again, in a world without the internet, in a world without telecommunications, without instant access, those small morsels of individualism and humanity will really go a long, long way. The question we now face is, what else do we know about her? Well, most of what we'll learn about her from here will come from European interactions. So now we can sort of dive into this greater uh, Jamestown narrative to an extent. We don't know, by the way, who Matuaka or Pocahontas's mother was. There is some speculation there. But again, because of Powhatan's system of basically using subjugated tribal women uh, to produce heirs as a way of physically bonding their tribes together but asserting his own dominance... It would not have been relevant at the time. The fact that her father was Palatan is what would have been relevant. But the idea that her mother was this unknown quantity, I think, would have not troubled people the way that we tend to think of it today, based on how we build our nuclear families. But here's how the story goes uh, from the Jamestown perspective. Jamestown is struggling from the very beginning. And one figure who will stand out right away 
as a man who many say will actually save Jamestown is a man we all know, at least by name, named Captain John Smith. Now, Captain John Smith is portrayed in the Disney film as a dashing, blonde, uh, strong-jawed individual, uh, which he really wasn't. He was about five foot five. He had a long, bushy beard, very much a man of his day, uh, but not a nice guy. And not a guy who was necessarily looking to build strong relationships with a lot of native peoples. How do we know this? Well, let's look at his background. John Smith is not just anybody. John Smith is not selected by the London Company of Virginia, these wealthy investors who want to colonize the New World and keep the money for themselves because he's such a great guy or because he's born for this. He's chosen because he's a mercenary. And not just a mercenary, but a mercenary who's fought all over Europe and parts of the Middle East and been successful. He's a survivor. He fought for the highest bidder. That's what a mercenary is, a paid soldier. He doesn't care why he's fighting, as long as there's a paycheck involved. And this has taken him everywhere. He's fought in the Netherlands. He's fought in Eastern Europe. He fought in the Ottoman Empire. He fought Muslims in the Middle East. At one point, legend has it, uh, when he was defending Wallachia, and if you remember, earlier in the season, Wallachia is the home of uh, Vlad the Impaler. This is about 200 years later. Uh, when, the, when the Ottomans attacked, legend has it, John Smith beheaded three Turks, three Muslim Turks. And the Prince of Wallachia will name him Sir uh, John Smith. He'll knight him in the Wallachian order. And he gives him a coat of arms. And if you look at John Smith's coat of arms, and I'm not making this up, there are literally three severed Ottoman heads, Turkish heads, on his coat of arms. So that wasn't just a rumor that sort of set him apart, but that's a big part of his new identity. He's this unbelievable soldier of fortune that's well-traveled. And if you're looking for a person who could take about 100 people who know nothing about survival in a wilderness environment, who know nothing about tribal peoples, and you put someone there who might be able to save them or make sure that they do well for themselves, John Smith is the guy. And again, he's not there because he's a nice guy or a pleasant person, but he's there because he understands how to survive in a very exotic, from their perspective, uh, and very dangerous world. Now, on the trip over to Jamestown, what will be Jamestown, that's what they'll find, uh, he's arrested, he's nearly put to death. When they get to Virginia, they discover that the London Company had very explicit orders that he should be in command. And that's really what saves John Smith. But early on, he sees that they're in big trouble. Because they're faced with a very certain decision when they first arrive in Virginia. They either plant food so they can eat in the coming winter, or they look for gold and silver. That's it. And of course, because the Spanish have found so much gold and silver, well, why would they waste their time doing anything else? Let's get that gold and get out of here. Well, there is no gold and silver in Virginia. What there is, is what we call today uh, pyrite, or fool's gold. That's there. And that will kind of lure them into believing that they're finding these riches, but they aren't. And winter comes around in 1608, and they very suddenly begin to starve. How much do they starve? Well, more than 50% of the original uh, 100 or so settlers that arrived in Jamestown will be dead during that winter. I mean, it's a tough situation. They call it the starving time. Even more frightening, if you've ever been to the Jamestown site, there's active archaeological digs there. And one of the things that we've discovered in the last five years, just about how bad it's been, 
is that we found the body of an adolescent girl somewhere between the ages of 10 and 12 years old. And we found tiny scratches on her femur, on her remains. And those tiny scratches are without a doubt from a knife and a fork. I mean, they ate her. Now, these were post-mortem scratches. She was already dead, at least we, we really hope. But the fact that they were eating their own dead bodies, cannibalism, goes to show just how desperate and unprepared these people were. Again, the Spanish have massive cities just a few hundred miles south. They have a flourishing world. In Jamestown, England's second attempt at colonization, they're eating each other. So it's not going well. But John Smith is one of these survivors. He writes about how they boil their boots and their belts because they're made of leather, and they try and eat those. I mean, it's just a horrible situation. And John Smith is very frustrated because he knows that you can live here. Uh, there's Indian tribes nearby that do, and they've been here presumably for a very long time. And the people he's with are so woefully unprepared for this job. Uh, he wonders himself if he'll even survive. Because he's got a job, and so far he's failing at it. So where, with all of this negativity, with all of this ill will and seemingly bad fate, uh, do the, the fortunes of the Jamestown settlement turn? And where does uh, Pocahontas, as we'll know her, come into the story? Well, this is something the Disney movie doesn't show well. There's a lot of problems with that film. Uh, believe it or not, after watching it, I would say that the talking raccoon and the singing tree are probably some of the most historically accurate parts of the movie. And of course, that didn't happen. It's literally made up, other than the fact that there was a figure named Pocahontas, and there was a figure named John Smith. The rest is largely bunk. And again, very creepy when you know the story. But uh, in the winter of 1607, John Smith will be exploring the Chickahominy River in Virginia, and he'll come across a hunting party of the Powhatan. Uh, this hunting party is led by the brother, younger brother, of Powhatan himself, a man named Opechancano, who, as impressive as Powhatan was, six foot five, is even bigger. He's six foot ten. I mean, this is LeBron James out there uh, in the wilderness. And they capture these tiny, white, bearded Englishmen, and they take them to Powhatan himself. Now, again, we would never know what happened at this council if not for Europeans being involved. What we do have to be careful of is that we read it or view it through the lens of what we know about native culture now and not the prejudices and misunderstandings of the age. But one of the things that will happen, and John Smith is very clear about this, is that he's present for a very large feast. And Powhatan has much to say to him. Again, there's real no effective communication here. And the Europeans that are there uh, can really only read how the meeting is going based on body language. And it seems to be very tense. Clearly, Powhatan is projecting that they are in his realm now. And he is going to make the decisions. And if they survive, it will be because of him. And John Smith keeps a detailed journal of this uh, early on when he's in Virginia. Pocahontas doesn't really jump into that historical narrative just yet. Not until another seven years later, John Smith will write about what else happened that night. That alone should be a red flag for you as to if these stories are real or if this is something of John Smith's creation. The fact that there is a uh, effectively eight-year, nine-year gap from the story that's going to become so legendary to his original accounts. But nine years after the fact, John Smith will recount to the Queen, and we'll talk about why. Something else that happened in that first meeting. 
And he'll talk about the fact that a group of Indian warriors, Palatan warriors, jumped out, grabbed him, threw him to the ground. One of the warriors held him down while another raised a war club above his head and seemingly was prepared to smash it on John Smith's skull. Now, why does he survive? He claims that one of Palatan's daughters, a girl he says is about 10 years old, jumps out of the fray, stops the two full-grown warriors, and saves John Smith's life. And we had that story ever since. And I know growing up in textbooks, and certainly studying older textbooks, something I always like to do, talk about making your skin crawl, I always wondered, you know, how they would view this, because I know the way I was taught as a professional, what was happening there, I'll share that with you, but I was wondering how they see it. For a long time, we didn't know why John Smith survived that event. I mean, if a warrior is going to smash his brains out, and he's helpless, a 10-year-old girl is really not going to stop it. And we didn't have a good answer why. And unfortunately, a lot of our answer was, for a very long time, well, John Smith is just so great, and so white, and so European, that these uh, foreigners, these savages, these exotic natives just couldn't have killed him. I mean, lucky for him, right? The problem is, that solution only works if you say that the native peoples have no history or no purpose or no sense of uh, moral standing of their own. And of course, about 30 to 40 years ago in the field of history, we realized there's some value here to studying native sources, and we learned exactly what was going on here. John Smith was never in danger in that regard. John Smith was never going to be killed in that regard. And Pocahontas, Matoaka, certainly didn't save him. This was a ritualized adoption ceremony. We know that it's very common in the native world in the 17th and 18th centuries to replenish numbers through adoption. And that that ceremony, including Matawaka or Pocahontas coming out and stopping the execution, was all planned. It was all choreographed. It was all uh, ritualized. And knowing what we know now, we know that John Smith was never in any danger. Uh, we do know he was, he was being symbolically killed and reborn into the Powhatan tribe. Not uncommon. But again, what does Smith know? What does any Englishman know about these people? They're the first Europeans to ever see the Powhatan. So you have a lot of unanswered questions there, but this is when Matawaka Pocahontas jumps into the historical fray. And I think she is a wonderful character for a lot of reasons. Again, she's about 10 years old whenever she meets Captain John Smith. And Smith will recount, either during this time or later in his life, and others will verify this, what an unusual commodity she is. I mean, Smith comes from an English world, a world where women have zero role to play in politics. And here's a young girl that will openly debate grown men in politics. Here's a young girl who's obsessed with knowing everything about England. She wants to learn about the English language. She has a sort of unquenchable knowledge. And the fact that you're listening to this podcast indicates that you and her and, of course, myself have that in common. But she's a very, again, uh, unexpected surprise in the New World in a very difficult way. Smith himself will again be smitten by her, but I have to stress, John Smith is almost 30 years old at this point. He's 27. He's born in 1580. And Matoaka, Pocahontas, is 10 years old. I mean, there is nothing, and I mean nothing, sexual or romantic about this relationship. A 10-year-old with a 30-year-old man is not acceptable in 2015, and it's certainly not acceptable in 1608 either. And that's important to understand. So there was a relationship there, but it was not sexual in any way. It was not romantic in any way. 
Uh, I think they had things to learn off of each other. In reality, Smith as a 30-year-old man probably just thought she was interesting. She made good company, but he never put much stock in her uh, being anything more than that. Again, survival is more important. But John Smith's story in Jamestown kind of ends there. Uh, two years after his arrival, he'll be hunting in the, in the forest. Uh, his gun will backfire in his face and burn a lot of it off. And he'll have to go back to England. And that's the end of John Smith's story in the New World. The Pocahontas film doesn't show that. They're too busy showing these two in this romantic entanglement, painting with all the colors of the wind. And again, total Creepsville, right? Like when you think about it. Total Creepsville. Uh, but why let reality get in the way of a good story, I guess. Um, but that's fine. Uh, Smith will go away. What we do know for a fact is that uh, the uh, English will tell the Powhatan that John Smith has died. He's gone back to England. He might as well be dead to them. And that's where they leave it. Now, again, Smith is their primary point of contact with the Jamestown settlement. He's one of the few people the Powhatan trust, especially Pocahontas. And they are deeply disturbed to learn that he's been killed. Now, again, he's not dead, but they'll tell him that. They'll tell them that. Uh, and that will sort of set the tone for relations diplomatically and politically uh, for the next decade. Things really quickly are going to start to fall apart in the year 1613. Again, about four years after Smith leaves. Because the Jamestown settlement is beginning to crow. They've discovered tobacco. And what a wonderful discovery it is. Tobacco is uh, an, an, an addictive narcotic. And you can only find it in North America. People in England have it. They smoke it. They want it. They're willing to pay any price for it. So if you can travel to the New World and you can grow tobacco, you can make a fortune. Because you can uh, grow as much or as little as you want. And you can set the price literally as high as you please. And they will pay it. Again, that's why drug dealers today make so much money. Because it's such a rare commodity. But at any rate, um, that's what they'll find in in Virginia. Tobacco. Tobacco becomes king. And this changes the balance of power in the New World. Because while the Spanish are digging up gold and silver, that will ultimately run out. And it does. And the Spanish Empire will collapse. But what the English have found is a renewable source of wealth. They can grow and grow and grow uh, and keep the world literally at their beck and call. As they do this, more people travel to Virginia. They settle there. They grow tobacco. Uh, the Jamestown colony grows. And the Palatans start to realize the deal we had, you stay in your little part of the uh, peninsula, we'll stay in ours, is about to be upset because the English are growing at a massive rate. And of course, the deal will be broken. We have what we call the first uh, Jamestown-Palatan War in the year 1609. Now, again, who holds the cards here? Well, the people of Jamestown believe they do. And through some subterfuge, they work on an arrangement with a subjugated tribe of the Powhatan that they should lure this uh, this lily, this, this white rose of the Powhatan, Pocahontas, away from her family and kidnap her. And in 1609, with John Smith just out of the picture, that's exactly what they do. The Palatine, uh, the Jamestown colonists will lure her to another tribal village. They'll kidnap her there and they'll hold her hostage at sea uh, until the war begins to work itself out. They have some demands. The Palatine have certainly been taking prisoners early on in this conflict as well as, well as weapons. The Jamestown colonists say, we'll release Pocahontas if you release our prisoners and our weapons. The Powhatan will release the prisoners, but they'll keep the weapons. Pocahontas will be held the long and short of it until 1614. Five years in English captivity. Think of that. 
Again, Disney wasn't talking about that, right? Um, the mouse covered that up, as he's known to do. At any rate, um, while in captivity, there's some varying sources on this. Some sources say she was treated well. Uh, of course, English sources. Native sources say she was sexually abused throughout her captivity. Uh, and again, in history, you, you consider both and consider both sources. Uh, but what we do know is by the end of it, Pocahontas will be Christianized. She will adopt the Christian religion, and she will take a Christian name. She uh, eliminates her former name of Pocahontas and her actual name of Matawaka, and she becomes known as Rebecca. That's her Christian name. And by 1614, when the situation's beginning to work itself out and much blood has been spilled, she'll basically say to the Powhatan, uh, My father has never respected me. Uh, these, my captors, are actually my family. These are my people now. I am no longer Matawaka. I am Rebecca, and I'm going to stay here. Think of that. Is this Stockholm Syndrome, of course, where the hostage begins to feel dependent on the captor, even when the hostage is rescued, they don't want to leave? Maybe there's some of that. But a decision has been made for whatever reason, by whatever motivation. And this is who she is now. And the rest of her life will be spent as an English woman. As she grows, as she matures, she embraces this English life in Virginia. Very little does she consider going back to her people or dealing with her people. And this all culminates with a marriage. She marries a white man, an English planter. He'll become something of a tobacco kingpin named John Rolfe. John Rolfe had a wife and daughter. They both died on the way to North America. Think of that. Pretty terrible stuff. And while he's in Virginia, he's cultivating his tobacco crop. He's a loner. He's a single man. He's a bachelor, but he's a very sad man. And he sees Rebecca Rolfe. And he sees Rebecca, Pocahontas. And he falls for her. He wants to marry her. He wants Rebecca to be his wife. But he doesn't believe he could marry a non-Christian. He's not certain of it. In the end, Rolfe will write a letter to the governor of Virginia asking for permission to marry her. And this is an excerpt from the actual letter. I'm not making this up. Again, I don't want to read to you, but I think it's important. He says, He's motivated not by the unbridled desire of carnal affection, but for the good of the plantation, for the honor of our country, for the glory of God, for my own salvation, and that of Pocahontas, to whom my hearty and best thoughts are and have been a long time so entangled, and enthralled in so intricate a labyrinth that I was even a-wearied to unwind myself thereout. They're made on April 5th, 1614. They have a son named Thomas. And this is a sudden and drastic change in the life of Pocahontas, which we don't often hear. She becomes an English woman. She has an English son. She's married to a very wealthy tobacco planter. He's so wealthy, Rolf himself can move back to England. He can leave his plantation in Virginia. People can work it for him. He'll still collect the revenue. But he can live as an Englishman should live. And when he comes back to England, he brings his wife and son with him. And this is a big moment. Because all the while, remember, the Virginia Company of London has been getting rich off of this Jamestown colonial experiment. And they want to convince more people to move there. Because they get a piece of the action. And what better advertisement can you have than a real Indian woman? Think about that. A, an Indian princess. They call her the Princess of the Powhatan. And Rebecca Rolfe, formerly known as Pocahontas, 
the artist formerly known as Matawaka, travels England. A party of 11 other Powhatan will come with her. Again, she's moving as Rebecca Rolfe, and she meets a who's who of people in England. She meets the king and queen themselves in England. She attends plays in England. She actually states that when she meets the king at a play, he's so unassuming she didn't even know it was him. But they're traveling around, and it seems like a goodwill tour, but it's really an advertisement for the Virginia Company of London. Don't be worried about the Indians. They're not so bad. Look at her. And John Rolfe is fine to go along with it, because he's making a ton of money. He is a success story in England. Now, all the while this is going on, remember there's a wild card here. There's a figure we haven't talked about in a little bit. John Smith. Remember, Pocahontas, Matawaka, Rebecca Rolfe believes he's dead. He's not. He's alive. And he's in England. And they will actually meet. When they do meet... It's not earth-shattering. It's not a major dramatic scene. It seems to go off without a hitch. How are you doing? Pocahontas, by all standards, is a bit um, shy. She sort of turns away from him, but that's that. But while this is going on, this whole traveling of England, that's when John Smith writes his letter to the Queen and recounts his survival story, how he meets Pocahontas and what he remembers about Pocahontas. And again, this is now, when you look at it, almost a decade after the fact. But he does it. Now, here's something really interesting. As you study more about John Smith, you find a pattern. And one of the things that happened to John Smith while he was captured by the Tartars in Eastern Europe was that he was nearly killed, only to be saved by the daughter of the regional ruler who was going to kill him. I mean, it's a mere image of the Pocahontas story. Now, what we think as historians is, either it really did happen in Virginia as an adoption ceremony, or... John Smith was recalling that event with the Tartars uh, and and placing it on Pocahontas' behalf to maybe make the story more interesting, give himself more gravitas, we aren't sure. But John Smith is a far-out character who's done a lot of pretty interesting things outside of what we typically think. But at any rate, uh, Rebecca uh, and, and John Rolfe and their son Thomas will settle in Middlesex in England. They'll have what seems to be a peaceful life. They make a decision, which would be a fateful one, to go back to Virginia. Before they even leave England, though, Rebecca gets very ill, and she dies. She dies at the age of 22. The Powhatan Princess, the Indian Woman, Matawaka, John Rolfe's wife, Pocahontas, a Powhatan woman, dies in England. She's buried in England. Her tombstone would have said, here lies Rebecca Rolfe. Not Pocahontas, not the Powhatan princess, nothing like that. And to this day, we actually don't know where her body is. We know what church it's at, but there's no headstone, there's no marker. She's likely buried under the church. Again, it's a bit of a mystery. But it's sort of a sad story in that way. Doesn't make for a great kids movie, that's the one thing we can agree on. But there's a lot more to it than we tend to think. Pocahontas dies at the age of 22 thousands of miles from her world, from her family. But she's with a new family. Does that mean she's a turncoat? Does that mean she's a traitor to her people and her race? No. That's one of the things I want to impress upon you in this podcast, even from season one. All of my books hit on this. The idea that when cultures collide on the frontier, it's very rarely 
black and white, A and B, blue and red. It's a mixture. It's a gray area. It always blends. And in that blending of cultures, you find much more impressive and important stories. I promise you, this is the last uh, movie figure we're going to touch on. Because we had two in a row. William Wallace last week, Pocahontas this week. But there is so much more there. And we do have to ask these basic questions. Because there's always more underneath the surface. If you get a chance, I'd really appreciate your donation. Keep the podcast going. Help me finance this. Help us grow. It would mean a lot to me. We're 62 episodes in. Hopefully I've made a good case to you. Hey, thanks for joining us. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime.